Welcome to another Black in a Box. That is the world as told by black faces in white spaces. And we are here. A, I would like to say election special, but it's not special at all. <laughs> For reasons that are going to become clear through the rest of this recording. We're here with our regulars, Alana. Yes, we are. Hello. And Angelo. <laughs> and we are joined by a guest, British Nigerian writer, media executive and satirist Nels Abbey. Burr, 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 burr. The house. Thanks for having me. No problem. You are a reformed banker and also co-founder of the Black Riders Guild. Um, ph- phenomenal to have you here. It's a delight to be here with you. Thank you so much for having me. No, it's, uh, we, we, we have, you, you've been down um, as a guest since the book launch and it's just been about sort of organizing stuff and topics and then angelo uh finally took the plunge and yeah it's been great been great to be able to get you on here today um i know you've been intellectually busy at this this current juncture this current moment in time for reasons which will become clear in our first couple of topics but first we like to start with Black Out the Box. So just for the uninitiated, for Nels, Black Out the Box is a topic which we have introduced recently where we both, we all highlight a specific thing that we've done, which, you know, we were loving. We want to want to start on a positive note. We want to uplift something. It can be black or it can be something that happened to you in your life or something you've seen. Um, we will start with you, Angelo. So on Monday, I, for the first time, was a judge for the Stage Debut Awards. It's like one of the big theatre award shows. And it was just a, a surreal experience because one of the other panellists was Baz Bamigboy, who um, has kind of been a writer for the Daily Mail for a long time. And uh, the, it's one of those where I think it will lead into some of the stuff we've been talking about. But... I can't lie, it was pretty cool seeing two of the judges be be black. Although I will say that he didn't seem to like the Boris Johnson joke that I threw him. But it's all love. It was all love. He came across as a really kind of cool guy. And um, it's mad to think that kind of three years ago, I was just reviewing kind of like school shows and um, like little festival things. And now I'm kind of a panellist on that and also uh, it's, i think it's been announced now the uk theater awards so uh yeah really pleased with that beer, 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 beer. we need to save up for that soundboard as i keep saying <laughs> <laughs> um alana yeah um i've done a couple cool things so one was a couple of weekends ago i finally got to see some of the queens themselves megan the stallion cardi b at wireless festival and um I found out that lots of British people have uh, preconceived ideas of wireless. So when I tell people I was going there, we had a a few varied reactions. (laughs) Um, But I have to say, I I had an absolute blast and actually had no idea that I was going to be running into Angelo's sister. So had a good old thirsty time (laughs) with Angelo's sister. It was the best. Um, And then the other thing was that I think the weekend before that, I went to a trail running festival called Love Trails in Wales. Absolutely beautiful, such a great experience. But I went specifically with Ultra Black Running, which was founded by Dora Atom. So good friend of the pod, Dora Atom, doing great work with Ultra Black Running, just supporting black women, getting outdoors, trail running, um, 
just putting us on the map. So two big things. Loved it. Hold tight, Dora, at all times. Mm-hmm. At all times. Uh, for myself, I will say I am an athletics fan. And this week, obviously, the World Championship Athletics has been on. And as as, as a Malawian, um, I've got no stake in this. I've got no <laughs> do, I've got no dog in this race, so I just enjoy it. Shelley Ann Fraser Price. Every time I turn on the telly, she's doing the thing. Yeah, Angela's dancing, and she's just enjoying it. She's in the interviews. She's just loving life. She's just it's just magnificent to see. And maybe she can double up. We'll find out. Maybe tonight? Is it tonight? Maybe tomorrow. But yeah, just been loving that. Good stuff. And finally, I guessed. Sure. So what have I been up to? So I had the opportunity to really... So I went up to Angelo Land, essentially. I went to... I was in the Yorkshire, but I was in Bradford for the Bradford Literature Festival a couple of weeks ago. And it was really, really nice. I, I didn't know what to expect, but I, I really got to see... I've been to Bradford before. I used to be a chair i used to be the chairman of the um commonwealth theater company which is a bradfordonian and welsh um, bradfordonian and um welsh theater company but i'd never really been to bradford to just have a good time a and b also participating culture so i had the opportunity to go up to the bradford literature festival that was fun i was on panels with dame baptiste angie lamar carlton dixon um i was on i got to see so many people up there um my friend um my boy Marvin Harrison of Dope Black Dads. Um, I met Stuart Lawrence for the first time. I saw my friend Nicola Rollock. Uh, it was just, re- I, I got to hang out with Ben Cree for an extensive amount of time. Um, I got to hang out with uh, Nash Shah, the MP. It was a really, 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 really nice stuff. Um, the other thing I did I'm really, really proud of from a blackness perspective is that I went to the, um, the fifth anniversary party of a company called Dialogue Books, which is run, which was founded and run by my dear friend, my sister, my partner, um, a business part that is um, Charmaine Lovegrove the Great. This is a very, this is a powerhouse of a woman. So, and she just moved up. She's now always pound for pound one of the most powerful women in um, publishing across Europe. Um, she's uh, she's now so Dialogue Book has gone from being an imprint to being a a, a division of Hachette, which is a big, big, big come up for a diverse book um, company. And um, so we had a we had a really, really great uh, boogie down in Peckham on a place called um, Skylights in Peckham which I'd also never been to so I got to hang out in the new Peckham which is something really nice uh, I mean, the, 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 the roof terraces over there is really, are really really nice I had a good time and that was me the last couple of weeks magnificent stuff yeah. a bit, bit of north and the south for you then for you yeah just quickly on that I think and Angela will know this because you're obviously living in a whole I think there's, there's a real not necessarily misconception people just don't know that like there is such uh, a sort of thriving uh, world of sort of culture and literature and and communities in the north and in places like Bradford. Um, so it's you know it's great to hear that. Is the festival there every year, or does it move around, or is it there specifically on this year alone, Nels? So this is Bradford Literature Festival is a Bradford oh, um, okay. festival. So, but Bradford's on the Bradford's a city that's um, needed that is that's really needed a hand up and is getting a hand up now. So it's going to be the city of culture in 2025. Uh, but it's it's a nice place. I really do think that many of us, the more we get out of London and get, go and get to see the rest of the UK, um, the better it is for us because it's something. There are some really beautiful parts of the country that are not that, have, that haven't been blackened enough for me so uh my one of my um long-term ambitions is um to 
blacken up in my own way um uh, a place called Snowdonia, which I believe is probably the most beautiful place in the United Kingdom. It's really, really, really beautiful and scenic, a scenic part of the world mm. um, in the summer and in winter. And it's a, it's in the northern part of Wales. So we see. So we need, we need to get our troops up there. Um, and the pressure, the pressure's on to turn Margate into a. I'll come back to that. But we all know Margate's becoming a, a black colony bit by bit. So um, yeah. So we'll see. We might annex Margate soon. But then I think we'll take Margate. We take. Um, Snowdonia, and I think would be good. I'm so on board with this. Uh, those are two of my favorite places in the UK that I've just happened to go. So I'm, I'm, I'm signing up. <laughs> Where's let's the go, Let's go. Yeah. Else, were you not on those buses in like the 90s when all the black churches would come down to Margate? I remember, I remember those. <laughs> like, because I we used to live in Kent, and so we'd go to Margate because it was, you know, it was 20, 20 minutes away, and you would see all these churches like First Episcopalian Church of Peckham. White Robe. <laughs> yes. they, they would come out and they would have their day out at Margate and I remember that and now obviously kind of like like you know 30 years later um Margate is like the new Peckham in terms of like there's a lot of people from London who are who are moving there but that's a story for another day really it's young black creatives cool mm-hmm. kids they're all making their way to Margate they're all just going there it's like it's really really surprises me um Natalie and Naomi who wrote this excellent book called The Mixed Race Experience. Um, they've just moved out there. Mm. My friend Emma Debeer is out there. I, I've mm. just seen people are people are really just making it happen over there. And I'll come back to it. There's, I had a there was a secret black plan for Margate that was actually that if something went cat- catastrophically wrong this week, we would have actually fully annexed Margate immediately. <laughs> <laughs> land, 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 sea, air, space, and cyberspace. We were taking Margate was the answer. We'd get. Russian endorsement to uh, to recognize us as a fully and we're gonna call it Blacktopia. We're gonna get Russian endorsement to um, to recognize us as the first fully black next state in Europe. So we, we were gonna go in, but thankfully that didn't happen. But we'll come back to that shortly. <laughs> we'll maybe just cut that out because we might need we might need to keep that plan in the tuck, you know, selection. <laughs> so I have once sailed around the Horn of Margate, so I've got that nautical experience. But we'll come back to you later. Indeed. So. Big, big week on a political front, and it's kind of, it's nice in a way, having spent the best part of two years just watching one party squabble, like, derail a whole nation, to watch them just sort of tear themselves apart for a bit, <laughs> without uh, breaking down the rest of the country, but I guess, it you know, in all seriousness, the, the fact is, it's, they are electing the next Prime Minister. This tiny membership of 0.1% of the, the people in this nation are electing the next prime minister of this country. And to be honest, I, I guess the question for me is, do you all feel represented? Don't answer that just yet. But <laughs> obviously just before this, Kemi Badenoch has actually bowed out of the race, meaning we will definitely not have our first black prime minister but we might have our first Praise battle. the Lord. Can I get hallelujah, brothers and sisters? <laughs> it's like, thanks be to God. We had to fast and pray. You name it. So we were in Margate, bare feet, white robe, pray that it would happen. The, uh, the good baby, the good baby white Jesus stepped in and made sure, no, my people would not be subjected to such nonsense. So here we go. <laughs> so I won't tell you who, who Nels was, was rooting for, <laughs> but... Uh, I, you make it up for yourself. I mean, Suella Braverman, Nadim Zahawi, Sajid Javid, Kemi Badenoch, and Rishi Sunak all up for 
the next Prime Minister's job. Now, we won't go into immediately the motivation behind putting up that particular range of candidates or the possibility of it or the optics of it or whether it's just, you know, a larger larger game. But, you know, do, do, do you feel represented? Is this racial progress, Angelo? <laughs> no, it's not. Um, I think that what it has done is it served to underline that we need to start deconstructing um, race, you know, I've been speaking for years on this podcast that we need a class consciousness rather than a color consciousness. Um, I don't know if you guys remember, do you remember in about, I think it was 2019 when Diane Young wrote her article for, uh, on The Independent, uh, talking about being, uh, about voting as a Tory, as a black voter. And I, I'll never forget it because the headline was uh, what being a black Tory voter means to me and why I won't be shamed for it. And what was being espoused was this kind of individualism. And there were apologies in the article, not apologies, but there was acknowledgements made of the fact that kind of the, the, the most execrable parts of the far right were endorsing uh, the Conservative Party and that, uh, that this woman had to sit with that. But when uh, she talked about the reasons, it was... I'll just read out, there's, there's a quote, it says... Um, uh, the, the Labour were too radical because they wanted to nationalise key industries, including free broadband, tax rises for the top 5%, changes to inheritance tax, a four-day working week, uh, removable, removal of charitable tax status for private schools. goes on to say, um, Labour need to realise they don't own the black vote. I mean, we can get into the Ford, Ford report. But I think the point is, is that what this person was really wanting was good is good if it's good for me. And there's... Um, I think it's uh, uh, Roy Wood Jr. who kind of says that, you know, I need to call myself black because someone needs to start to go fund me if, uh, if I get killed. I know Dame Baptiste has got a similar kind of joke. But we cannot look at somebody like Nadim Zahawi, who came from the world of banking, who is himself being investigated by the HMRC for possible tax evasion. You can't look at Rishi Sunak, who is also kind of had his issues with tax avoidance. You can't look at people like Soella Braverman and uh, Kemi Badenoch, who Kemi Badenoch can say as much as she wants, you know, I came from Nigeria and didn't have any running water, only to have like a hundred Nigerians come out and go, look, we know where you came from, stop, stop peddling this lie. What I will say is the reason it's not progress is because here's how insidious, and I don't know if you want to call it capitalism, I don't know if you want to call it white supremacy, and yes, I am deliberately linking those two things, um, but what they've realized is you can get away with a lot more capitalism slash white supremacy if you put a dark colored face on front of it. Yeah, well, that was always the thing, right? Like, I can't remember which American activist said this and probably lots of subsequent activists, but um, the concept that there will always be puppets like of white supremacy, of capitalism, and they are inextricably linked. Um, so, yeah, I just there, there's always going to be the puppets that kind of bring people along into the system um, and make you think that progress is being made when it's actually, as you said, Angelo, much more insidious. And we you always have this conversation when it's election time, Tories tend to band together, whatever their problems are, it's power at all costs. And on the other side, 
what you have is people hold on to their beliefs and they're going to stick to those beliefs. Even when it's an election to be won, they'll still stick to those beliefs. And it's, I guess it, it tracks to me that we one side will put whatever face or will tolerate whatever face they need to tolerate in order to to rise to power and then from that point onwards you can start to enact your agenda which you know which doesn't really doesn't really matter who is is the the the, the face of that agenda or who is the mouthpiece of that agenda you're pushing things that through that you need to push i like and the in the in the dane baptiste um sort of interview when he was not interview so when he was appearing on Eendale's show what you saw then is they were trying to frame him as saying that all black people are mouthpiece when that wasn't actually what he said and I was getting we're going to this later on but that is a very convenient it's a convenient misrepresentation because it, it it sort of distracts from the fact that he's not you're not saying that one person is necessarily uh is is aware that they're being used in that in such a way it's just a, they they're a convenient uh prop for a, a a bigger message um nels yeah i think it's a very interesting question in terms of um our black people is the diversification of um of of the of the leadership of the conservative party does it represent a representation and b progress and i think that it's a mixed bag so I think there's multiple things going on here, and I think that it boils down to character and who the people actually are. And I don't think there's much that's new here as we like to think. So as your point out, Dave, as you as your point out, we've always had characters um, in the black community who will collaborate with power um, for their own ends. That's just the way it is. In fact, um, just this morning I posted a piece about a man called Sir Kitoye Ajasa. He was probably the Kemi Badenoch of his day. I'll give you a couple of quotes from him. It might be suicidal for any empire to let the subject races in on empire secrets or be employed in positions of trust. Another quote is, we in West Africa have been, have been for generations under British rule, and with that rule, we are satisfied. That man was the first man to be knighted, the first Nigerian to be knighted um, by the British. He was existed, he lived between the years 1866 and 1957, he was a colonial lackey, and Britain, of course, pumped him up significantly, gave him all the power and prestige you could potentially think of, funded a newspaper for him, and just he just gave him everything you'd want to, as he was saying, to hear, and he was, didn't, of course, didn't reflect the views or, or beliefs or desires of the Africans, but he was, he reflected the views, thoughts, desires, and beliefs of empire. And that's pretty much what empire does. Uh, that's what uh, power does. Power likes to replicate itself in any kind of it can potentially do so. And so, but I think there's something that's happened here. That there's two things that have happened here in terms of this. Actually, maybe even more than two things in terms of diversification of leadership of the of the Conservative Party. One, we now know there are two routes to being popular enough to become a potential leader of the Conservative Party as an ethnic minority. One of those two routes is to actually give out billions of dollars, billions of pounds, I beg your pardon, um, to save people's jobs and their livelihoods and the economic system in the middle of a pandemic, which is the Rishi Sunak route. The other route is to be a rabid right-winger who who provides, um, who runs interference and provides cover for racists and white supremacy, so white supremacy as much as possible. And that's the Suella Braverman and, of course, Kemi Bradley. <laughs> So that is the other route to that. 
the other people who didn't really fall too heavily into either those two brackets, Sajid Javid or Nadim Zahawi, you would have noticed they fell by the wayside pretty early in this, in this race. Uh, see, on one hand, as far as Rishi Sunak was concerned, we were seeing the diversification of potential leaders of Conservative Party on some degree of, I wouldn't describe it as progressive, but at least nominal, normal basis that he was, an, he was a man of economics, a man of numbers, a man of money, he was a former chancellor, and that's pretty much what he did. He doesn't play the whole race game, he doesn't inflame things, he doesn't lie on India, he doesn't urinate on, on his heritage or anything else or so, um, unlike, say, uh, unlike, say, some people. That I can, to a certain degree, consider to be somewhat progressive. Rishi Sunak is, in my view, a decent conservative, um, even though he backs things like the Rwanda plan, which is lunacy, but we'll see what he does with it if he gets elected. Because I think if he doesn't get elected, I think quietly he'll probably get rid of it. Um, but on the other side of things, we've got a very, very dark diversity, which I don't think is a diversification of, of um, leadership. I think it's a diversification of right wing, of extreme right wing um, shenanigans and racism to a certain degree, extremism. And uh, and I think that's what we're seeing the other side with, as far as people like Kemi Badenoch and other people are concerned. But overarching, in terms of the question, the the term that we've accepted, I know I'm going over quite a bit, but the term we've accepted for a long term now is the concept of representation politics. And that's a term that I actually challenge, where I don't feel represented by any of these people. I think it's often just place, um, almost it's almost just a, a politics that I'll probably describe as being round the round the table politics, or or ticking a box politics, or um, or presence politics. For a lot of time, the people that we often uphold as being representative of us in representation politics do not represent us at all as slightest bit. Often, in some cases, they often are more representative of the interests of racists, extreme racists, as we saw with some candidates in this actual, in this race, than they are of black or brown people in the slightest. Yeah, I mean, uh, representation politics is killing people, and it's... It's, yeah, uh, it's a death trap. This is it, and it's... I feel like you were talking about the sort of diversification. Well, you mentioned the diversification of racist views. It's it's as much that to me as as the mainstreaming of of those views, and those views become palatable, and they enter the Overton window, and then we can we can fight on that basis. You mm. can't you can't fight on that basis when the, the those words are coming out of the mouth of someone who looks like you, or people think you can't. And the way to shut that down and say, well, you you say that uh, you can't be black and Tory. And then that's in, that's the end of that. It's you know, it's look at this person. They're in. They're intolerant. They're the ones who want to cancel that debate. They're the ones who want to cancel people who aren't like them. And I feel like it's this. It's so much obf obfuscation that we we don't end up talking about the policies. We don't end up talking about these things, which are which are ultimately uh, painful uh, to to people like us. And you know, I know we're going to move on to um, Kemi. But I really do want to just take 30 seconds to kind of go, how dare you? Because And also, here's how she's smart. How did Kemi kind of get onto the national profile? She was a junior minister for a while. It was by attacking another black woman. I don't know if you guys remember the disgusting attacks that she put on uh, Nadine White, who is a friend of the pod. And I swear I'm getting her on. That is, that is my <laughs> white whale. But Nadine White, who was asking questions during COVID and... Uh, questions that had been supported and backed up, and uh, Kemi Badenoch attacked her uh, relentlessly on Twitter through a series of tweets, and when shown to be completely wrong, stood by it. And there was, it was led to a real upsurge in her visibility. How dare you attack 
a black woman and then stand there and say kind of, you know, almost like I'm the post-racial candidate. You you need to go on because the ancestors will look down and they will they will judge you harshly for that. I just I how dare you just attacking attacking a black and it's 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 a young black woman, very young black woman. Too. A young black woman and the only race correspondent in the country. But going back to what you were saying now, that is the third way. Um yeah. uh, you can there is no downside, it seems, in mainstream politics of attacking black women. Because yeah. none of the people uh, that attacked Diane Abbott, that made her life a misery, that have been outed in the Ford report, lost their jobs. In fact, they are now running that party. So, sorry, I'm not having it. But sorry, Dan, I know I hijacked No, so sorry, Andrew, can I, just, can I just update one slight thing uh, to what you said? Nadine White was not the first black woman she actually attacked. Dare I say she was not? No, no. The Dean White was, um, I believe she was the she was the second two that she attacked prominently. The first person she went after was actually Rene, my friend Rene Edo Lodge. Mm. Um, she she um, in the Spectator, she said that she thinks she disparaging. Now I want to make sure I get this right. I don't want to get sued. Uh, but what she said that um, she pretty much dismissed Rene because of her book. Well, I'm not going to talk to white people about race and other other similar books. Um, she said that she pretty much described René as a potential segregationist. And then René turned around and just said, this is ridiculous. And so I wrote the Black Writers Guild that we collectively, hundreds of us came together, Black writers all came and signed an open letter condemning uh, Kerry Badenoch. Now, in retrospect, one of the things that I think had happened, I know we'll come back into more of this as time goes on, one of the things that happened is that the actual tactics that she uses are not entirely a million miles away from far-right tactics. So the far-right do stunts sometimes to actually to inflame things left in minority communities and then we respond in a almost in a way that's almost fairly predictable but that response then further promotes them so it's the same way happened with her so when she goes after Nadine goes after Reddy goes after um um I mean she does things like the Tony Sewell she pretty much become the only person who touched the Tony Sewell report pretty much this is a racial demagogue and I know we're going to come back to it but our response or everything that we do or so just it's such a it's it just promotes her promotes her promotes her and then they, in the eyes of the party they think that she's this massively talented person but she's really not it's just there's not really much to it it's just hey inflaming black people and throwing black people on the bus is it, it won't destroy your career it, it's a promotion tool in this country hmm. particularly black women dare i say too yeah uh-huh. these there's nothing special about some about these people we've we've had similar people in black society for hundreds of years i mean hundreds um, you go back to the probably the, the person closest to um, West to the West in, in human history, black person is probably a man called Mobutu Sesiko, who was probably one of the corrupt African leaders ever. He too was discarded when he ran out of uses. He was left to actually just roam around the world with cancer, couldn't find treatment, and died. Pretty much a pathetic man. So all of them just um, eventually they realize that they're not useful. They're not special. I beg your pardon. They're just useful, and I think that's the key thing to it. And this is it, that, that point that you made about when um, <clears throat> Kemi uh, uh, Badnock outlives her usefulness, she'll be discarded. I She's think funny. that is actually what animates so much of her seeming anger towards black people. Um, and I remember when I was at uni kind of like researching this phenomenon. It's so funny that things like critical race theory are now very prominent because it was a very niche thing when I was studying it in 20. Uh, 18. And there was, I don't know if you've ever read Joyce Carol Oates, uh, Black Girl, White Girl. No. Um, 
So it's a really interesting book. Uh, basically, there is uh, there is a black girl that is given absolute hell, but the the person that gives her the most hell is the only other black girl in the white institution. Mm. And there's this really interesting part where um, she really loses her temper with her, and it becomes quite clear because that she realizes that her role within that white society is to be the cover so that they can say whatever they want because she is saying it with them. Mm. And, you know, it doesn't take uh, too much imagination to go, is this why Britain first endorsed of all the candidates, uh, Kemi Badenoch? Because actually she is going to allow them to say exactly what they want to say. Um, so I just want to read this quote, uh, talking about these two, these two black women, the oppressed and the oppressor. Uh, they both suffer from blackness, as I've defined it. The, the light-skinned black girl is aware of her role as a slave. The thing that saves her from the violence that is visited upon the other is an understanding that she must be the most vehement antagonist. And that is kind of Kemi, because what role does she have if she's kind of just doing moderate policies? She's useless. You have to be as extreme because otherwise you're not going to, you know, you don't get to play. I yeah. mean, this is, it's the typical, like, house slave uh situation like the person who the black person who wants to receive the least amount of violence or wants to be bolstered or whatever the intrinsic reason is has to go to an extremism to the nth degree in order to be useful like you said but also there must be a certain to some extent i would assume there's a a level of distancing there wanting to distance themselves and say but i'm not that type of black I'm not that person. Yeah. And there's there's a weird, I would suspect, some sort of identity uh, disassociation happening here as well. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised, but yeah, I, I agree with that. I think that in terms of the identity stuff is, look, I think, so Kemi Baladoc and I have actually fairly similar upbringings. Um, it's fair enough, um, she, came from, she came from a much more of a middle-class, richer family than I did, but in terms of actually the international aspect of the upbringing in which um she's the same age as me and we lived in the same countries long story short so i was um she was born in britain but she went to back to nigeria when she was about two weeks old i was born in britain i went to nigeria when i was about 12 and then i went there did some of my secondary education got the hell beaten out of me uh, many many times so i was one of those naughty kids and i came back here when i was in my late teens around the same time she came back to came back here we're seeing us, sadly, um, what she's actually done or what she's done over here. And it's something that's, all, that's always existed throughout black history. And the black person who's willing to actually do down other black people will always be promoted much more rapidly. And you see it, like uh, whether it's Sajid Javid. Think about it. Sajid Javid, who was the former health secretary, former culture secretary, former chancellor exchequer and former, um, there's one more he also did too, um, health, culture, Charles V. Exchequer, and there was another one he also did to her, but he's held down four really, really big offices. Home Secretary, too. He, so he held down two of the great offices of state. Sajid Javid didn't make it onto the final ballot to actually go through, to actually run, to, 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 become, to run to become Prime Minister. He wasn't selected. He couldn't find 20 people within the Conservative Party who would say, Give, put me on the ballot. He couldn't find them whatsoever. Kemi Badenoch, who is a junior equalities minister, with no real experience, exposure, education um, in this regard, uh, without the extensive experience, exposure, not much age on her or anything else, and she just sailed through and ended up in the top four. 
So it says a lot, and it goes back to the question about the progress elements. It says a lot about where the Conservative Party is and how um, how extremism can be uh, brought into any into British politics through black people, essentially. And I will say this: I, it's something I predict right now. I was right. I've written a book about it already, but it just hadn't I hadn't sold it yet. But um, but I'm going to get around to it right now. I need to make some changes to it. But the future of right-wing extremism in Britain, the future of mainstreaming and legitimising racism in Britain is black and brown. Because there's going to be no politician, young politician, who's going to see what happened to Sandy Javid and Dean Zahawi and then see what, how Suella Braveman and um, Kay Badenoch got, and they're going to think to themselves, you know what, I want to be Sajid and Nadim. I want to be the credible, serious politician. They're just going to think, no way, I'm just going to go for it. I'm just going to become, I'll be on Twitter for five years or so, spewing all sorts of right-wing bigotry then off I go into Parliament and I'll just keep doing the same thing. And you see it, it just becomes, and it's a self-consuming thing, because that's where the fear was. Maybe I've, I've, I've scuppered the podcast a little bit, and then it comes to Kemi shortly. But that was where the fear was for us, because we all knew that she couldn't leave that anti-blackness or that, uh, that white supremacy alone. So if she actually got into number 10, that's what would keep her in number 10, as you would have to keep going. So the Rwanda plan would have been, would have paled into insignificance. But as to what was coming down, the what was coming next for us, because that's what she does: interest rates, inflation, um, you name it. So that's not really her thing. Her thing is culture war. Let's go for it. Yeah, let me get Tony Sewell in to actually write this report. Let me get this person. And all the cra- the crazier it gets, you get the crazier it gets, or so the more it benefits. And I think that's a scary thing. And I think that we should all really be thankful that she did um, that it didn't work out this time around. And I think quite literally the moment she was eliminated, I really did feel a sigh. I really did feel some relief. Yeah. I really did. See, so, yeah, the problem is if you are a young black or brown person and you are a conservative and you don't go far enough, you end up Sean Bailey. You know? <laughs> Sean Bailey's both in my hood. Yeah, absolutely. We come from the same era. Sean Bailey. But Sean Bailey, again, is another one. Sean Bailey, I'm, I'm just saying put it out there. Sean Bailey's an airhead. <laughs> Sean Bailey, look, in our area, Sean Bailey was, look, Sean Bailey's a solid decade older than me, so he's meant to be, he was in the youth work and everything else, and I was meant to be one of those youths he was meant to be working with. Sean Bailey was a joke. Like, no one took the guy seriously whatsoever. I, Sean Bailey used to live in a block of flats with my sister, um, and that's when I first heard about, heard about him, around 99, 2000. Nobody, and you go and speak, you want to know about Sean Bailey, go and speak to dark-skinned black women from Labyrinth Grove. And they will tell you stories about Sean Bailey, about how much of a nightmare the guy, the guy was. So when he got selected to become some sort of like Cameron type of thing, Cameron, A-list, potential black conservative, and then he got made, got selected for mayor of London, it showed you how much, how the power of just saying what racists want to hear. It's, it's very lucrative. It's it so is mad. very, very lucrative. It's, it's very powerful. That if you can just hack it, if you can just, it's almost like, um, the, the movie I always figure, I always make, talk about when it comes to actually looking at the dynamics of slavery and the and how people interacted within it. Um, and I know we don't like to talk too much about slavery because again, it's a painful history, but there's but much of black history or so has a lot of lessons in it. The film Django Unchained was so fascinating because there were so many characters within it. If you look at it, so people often think of the house, um, the house end and the field end or so, but there's so much more to it. So even if you look at um, Calvin Candy's house, there was one particular woman there who was actually called Sheba who was actually just, um, so when there's one scene where Django stood next to her, and she was a well-dressed black woman who looked almost majestic, um, almost majestic, or almost regal. And then um, she was really, really beautiful. They had the Mandingo wrestling there. She, just, Django stood beside her, and she gave him the dirtiest look whatsoever. 
that she was the well-kept woman on the actual plantation. There's the other moments too, when you actually looked around, like in the uh, in the beginning of it, when they ran up to Django, when they ran up to Django, Django just finished killing one of the slave, one of the slave catchers with the whipping him down and killing one of them. And then um, the guy said he's actually, he was actually wanted by a bounty. Um, what Django, what you then saw when all they when they all ran up, ran up to him, one of the children was very very light skinned and he was only the only child who actually had a gun on him. Everybody else was just completely unarmed. But the other, he was clearly the plantations, the plantation of the son. But there's so many different things that actually happened in that film that it just it was so well studied and so well thought through, possibly more so than even films that explicitly about slavery. But the key moment that really jumped off of it to me was when. Um, the hounds were un unleashed on one of the Mandingo wrestlers who tried to run away. Mm -hmm. And if you look at what happened there, it was such a statement. And I think it does say something about 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 black conservatism to a certain degree. Because what happened was that um, Calvin Candy was played by Leo DiCaprio. When they were when the hounds were killing this actual man, eating him to death, Calvin Candy wasn't looking at the hounds eating the man. He was looking at Django to make sure that Django didn't have any empathy for him whatsoever. So uh, Django just watched, just watched the whole thing and just showed no empathy, no care. And what he was doing, what Calvin Candy was doing, the metaphor for it is what goes on in society. Because what they were trying to make sure of is that this was not a person who had any problem with the status quo, that he wasn't going to challenge the status quo whatsoever, that he was happy with things as they were. He was, he was happy with things as they were. He had no problem with the suffering or, or anything else whatsoever black people. He just had one particular interest, one business interest that was his own, and to get in and out. And I think that is a metaphor for what we saw in some... I wouldn't describe Rishi Sunak in these terms as well as bit. I would describe Suella Braverman and, um, can, and, uh, and um, wow. I nearly call her Candace Owens, and Kemi Badenoch in that regard. <laughs> um, so so and I, I would describe this. So that element to just look at people who look like you going through hell and not trying to help them there's something that I don't think any of us on this podcast could do. You with me? We'll step in and say, no, that's not going to happen in our presence whatsoever. That's going to happen. not going to happen at all. We want to fight for them. But that is what was happening here. This was a person who's not just willing and able to just look at us going through hell, but was willing to actually pour gasoline on the actual hellfire too. And I think that's a very, very sad, 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 pathetic story of um, of our experience in our, in our history. That is, that is in itself like a sort of great segue. I think when we a lot of people thought and i think if kemi badenoch was the leader of the conservative party she would be the next prime minister of this like she would win the next election as well just yeah. because of who's across the trenches um and i think we can we can get in now into to where we sort of talked in broad terms about like what she prioritizes as her policies as her action points as her talking points um, I will preface that by saying there was an opinion poll, opinion poll of Tory members a few weeks ago, now, and only three percent cared about trans issues. Only thirteen percent about free speech issues. These like these cultural dog whistles, which she builds her campaign around. She's doing that because that's 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 her interest. Not because the members care about it. That's not because that's what it's going to take to 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 get her into high office. That's coming from a, like a, a personal choice, and uh, you know, on 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 her part. And it's very much she's in cahoots with with you know with or she's on board with with that viewpoint. So I guess to me that's why 
I, I see her and, and she is a rising star still. She may have not gotten to the final two, but we've not seen the last of her influence on that party going forwards. That's why I saw it as such a potentially uh, her appointment as, as pointing to a dangerous direction for the Conservatives and for this country. Um, Angelo. Um, I think that the one small thing I take issue with is the the reasons for going so hard after culture war stuff. Um, it's because the only other thing that you can do as the incumbent party and the party that has been incumbent for 12 years is repudiate your own policies. Yeah. Um, yeah. The cost of living has not... Uh, the, the, the the cost of living crisis is a crisis that has been years in the making. So you can't really talk economics without repudiating the economics that your party over the course of three parliaments, or is it four parliaments? I forget how many times they've replaced the leader, um, has itself kind of done. You can't really talk uh, sensibly about race because... Theresa May, who is kind of having this George W. Bush renaissance as yeah. kind of a decent person by virtue of the fact that what followed her was so much more venal. But this is still the person that did a Windrush and, you know, under whose leadership a lot of those files were being deliberately destroyed. Um, so you can't really talk about immigration without repudiating your own party. The reason that they talk about culture wars is the same reason that you've got people in this country that are just warriors on Twitter. We've got some four and five star Twitter generals because actually we don't have the answers to the big questions. Yeah. You know, we how, how do I get out of a cost of living crisis? How does a person kind of go, well, do you know what? I work a full time job and I have to use a food bank. I can't answer those questions, but I'll talk for six hours about who's better out of Ronaldo and Messi because... That doesn't really have an answer, and I can just be entrenched in my position. I will talk up whether people should be allowed to go to the toilet, because actually that's a, easier than the trillion-dollar, trillion-pound problems that we've got. And I think that a lot of the Tories um, realise that. Can't talk about economics. We're the ones that we're the ones that started the fire. You know, you can't talk about immigration. We're the ones that started the fire. And, you know, like the, the, the Tory party has been in power for something like 80 of the last 115 years. Yeah. So what are we really talking about here? You've you had Blair and Callaghan. That's basically it. So um, whilst I hear what you're saying, Dan, I think actually Kemi knows exactly what she's doing. There, there is no solution to uh, the problems that we have in society without a dismantling of the kind of conservatism that got us there. And since they're not into kind of dismantling look we have to go to trans trans issues we have to go to critical race theory we have to go to sending people to rwanda a policy that is more expensive and will never ever pay for itself even if that's kind of you believed in it it is just about stoking the fires and I think when you look at those polls also, there's what people think they are interested in, and then there's actually what gets them impassioned and inflamed. So if you're looking at, you know, if somebody asks you on a survey, what do you care most about? Immigration, climate change, trans issues, this, that, and the other, you might mark down that you don't care about more of those social issues or those cultural issues because you think you ought to care more about the economy or immigration and whatnot. And then when it comes down to it, off of paper, the thing that actually gets people in their feelings 
are those cultural issues exactly like you said angelo yeah, I agree with that. I think that so I'm often skeptical of the polls when it comes to these sorts of things because the polls will always say, ah, nobody really cares about this sort of stuff. But people were voting for Kemi Badner. People Kemi Badner got to the top of the polls for a reason. And it wasn't because of her economic prowess or her foreign policy brilliance or her or anything like that whatsoever, or her in, unique insight into how to run the NHS or anything else. It was culture war, culture war, culture war, culture war. And as, as Angela pointed out, uh, they had nothing else to offer. The pro they had nothing else to offer other than that. They couldn't really actually um, mention, they couldn't go over, they couldn't run on their record. They couldn't run on their record because the problems are problems that they have to own now. And uh, they can't keep blaming Labour, I mean, 12 years into administration whatsoever. There's such a fascinating thing when I think of the Conservative Party. When I think of the, the black people of the Conservative Party in black history or so. Um, if you isolated the Conservative Party's treatment of black people, the Conservative Party is looking kind of like Al Qaeda when it comes to black history. Uh, you know what I mean? It's kind of like Because <laughs> really, <truly>, black <sighs> people have the power, so we would, be, we would chase them into the Tora Bora right now. There's no doubt about it. But the key thing is that they better pray, because one day or so, because if we had power, we would have been a prescribed group. It would have been a prescribed group. Really, truly, by now, definitely. After Windrush, if you think about it, after if if they did Windrush, for example, by Windrush I mean the actual scandal. After the Windrush scandal, as in the deporting of Caribbean elders who'd given much of their life to this country and were deported back home, so many of them died. If that was done to any other person, any other group of people, or so other than black people, they would be in deep. They would, they would have been out of office. But because it happens to us, nobody cares. Nobody cares about it whatsoever. But when it boils down to it, when it boils, when you look at it, whether it's the trans stuff, whether that Kemi brought to the table, the anti-blackness that she clearly brought to the table and everything else, it was no surprise that, even though I think that Britain first may have been trolling, uh, as they, as somebody revealed they probably were in their Telegram group, the reality of the matter was that they, by the end of it all, it made sense. Because when you saw Britain um, first come out and say, okay, well, we're backing Kevin Badenow, it made, it made perfect sense, because you're thinking, yeah, these are birds of a feather flocking together. So... There you go, and that's that's the sad, the sad, sad, sad reality of it all. But I, I maintain the future of fascism in Britain is black and brown, and black and brown and Tory. And um, but also too, um, I, but I want to make this 100% clear: not all of them play this game. Sad, um, I don't think um, Rishi Sunak plays this game in the slightest bit. He's not. Sad, Rishi Sunak is not getting bad enough. Um, Nadim Zahawi is not Suella Braverman. But but I'm not too sure. I think the futures of black and brown conservatives are not going to be the Rishi Sunak or Nadim Zahawi model. It's going to be the Kemi Badenoch model because that is what gets popular. That's what cuts you through because oh, there's only so many times you can give out billions of pounds in the middle of a pandemic. That was a once in a three, four hundred year moment that, that, that Rishi Sunak just happened to be holding the bag with. Other than that... That, that also that went, that went against every fibre of that man's being. The way he held on to those purse strings until the last moment, <laughs> he did not want to give that money away. Yeah, it could, it could. I mean, to be honest with you, I know we're talking about right now. But everybody's looking at the direction that they're, they're talking about. We're potentially going to have our first pain or person of color prime minister. I think it's going to be Liz Truss. Truth told, I, I think that is. I think Liz Truss. She's doing better in the polls. Um, look, she got through to where she is right now without even doing one broadcast interview. Um, she, she, she's Theresa May get up, and I think Labour's coming back in two years' time. Um, uh, Labour's coming back in two years' time. In Royal, um, uh, well, hell, do I think the Labour Party are the Arad Knights in Satinama? 
No, I don't think so. I'm afraid not. It's like, I don't think that... Because um, even what Boris Johnson said today, that when Boris Johnson made a good point, he said that we've apologised for our involvement in Windrush. The Labour Party never apologised for their involvement. I was like, uh, hello. Now you're, now you're making a very, very interesting point there. But there's one thing Boris Johnson knows how to play, and he said it. I don't know how old you guys are, but in 2008, when Boris Johnson just took office in um, as mayor of London, Boris Johnson was speaking to a guy called Nihal at the BBC. And Nihal yeah, said to Boris, Boris Johnson said to Nihal, his exact words were, Nihal asked him about, are you cool with ethnic minorities? Because there have been rumours of racism in Boris Johnson, justified rumours of racism in Boris Johnson, picking any smiles, or like, watermelon picking any smiles, that sort of stuff. And Nihal asked him about, about that sort of stuff. And Boris Johnson jokingly responded to him and said that, you are not going to out-ethnic me. Trust me, that I know what I'm doing when it comes to the race stuff. And that man did. That he has simultaneously made his party look glorious in terms of diversity whilst pursuing a racist agenda. It is genius stuff. It is evil genius stuff. It is really, really brilliant stuff. And it's worked, it's worked a treat. It's worked a treat. But our lives don't get better. But we can say, oh, shut up, because there's no good racism here. Look at, look at the diversity in the cabinet over there. It's like, well, you've got a black far right person over here. It's like, well, <laughs> you wanted diversity, you got it. And that's it. This is it, right? It's a prestige. It's the prestige. He's got just, just tanks of dead people under the stage because that's what it took for him to rise to power. Yeah, so I guess at this point we're going to skirt across the aisle because shortly before, I say shortly before, a day before this recording, the long, I would say long-awaited Ford report, <laughs> long-delayed Ford report was found in the long grass, covered in red pen, damaged beyond repair disowned and unloved and <laughs> yeah it was leaked and the leaks confirmed what many people thought uh should i give it just should i give a run through the key findings just at the top yeah, of this please. yeah go on please. okay so this all is, the gory detail let's hear it we'll give you the the headlines debilitating factionalism Martin Falk QC paints a depressing picture of two rival camps based around Corbyn's office and Labour HQ in London's Victoria, locked in a bitter struggle for control, which hampered the functioning of the party. Weaponising anti-Semitism. Both sides use anti Both sides. Oof. There's a phrase. Use anti-Semitism as a weapon, with some denying its existence and others using it primarily as a means to attack Corbyn. Dysfunctional discipline. Labour's disciplinary systems were not fit for purpose and exploited by different factions. In 2016, there were 5,000 unresolved complaints, almost a, th a third of which related to anti-Semitism. But Ford did not find evidence of systematic attempts by Corbyn's team to interfere in disciplinary process. Trot hunting and bell ringing. There was concerning behaviour by senior staff opposed to Corbyn attempting to expel party members. Staff described this process as hunting out thousands of trots, trot busting, trot spotting, trot hunting, and one suggested searching the pro-Corbyn hashtag, hashtag I'm with Jezza, to see if he uses a posted abuse. One employee described regular bell ringing in Labour HQ. Abusive WhatsApp's elite 2020 report, which triggered the Ford inquiry, was a factional document which selectively quoted some messages. But the Ford report found that the quoted WhatsApps from a group of senior management overall were not misrepresented or misleading. 2017 election campaign clashes, anti-Corbyn staffers in Labour HQ did not deliberately try to throw the election, some left-wingers have suggested, but did set up a secret operation channeling funds to MPs who they wanted to protect. The leader of the opposition, meanwhile, sought to support its own favourite MPs. Racism. 
There was overt and underlying racism and sexism in the abusive WhatsApp messages included in the leaked report, pointing to a deeper problem with racism in the Labour Party. Chaos in Corbyn's office. There's hostility from Labour HQ towards Corbyn's office, but its operation appeared deeply dysfunctional. Factional hires. Recruitment it became a battleground in struggle for control of the Labour Party under Corbyn's leadership with both sides seeking to shore up its power base by hiring sympathisers leading to a lack of diversity in Corbyn's cooperation. Almost no-named individuals are criticised by Ford, but he observes that the former Labour leader did not himself respond to request for interview, instead signing a joint submission. So, Dan, I've... can I jump in there? Yes. Because it doesn't get any better. What's, what I found interesting on so much of the reporting is how low down the kind of criticism like the pointed and sharp criticism towards those that um were attacking diane abbott comes yeah which again speaks to this thing of do you know what you can you can make a you can make a whole career out of attacking black women because remind me what jess phillips is doing at the minute jess phillips is the shadow minister for women jess phillips who was the one that directed um, the uh, journalists towards a crying Diane Abbott. Jess Phillips, was, she was made Jess up a Phillips? quote. I, I'm pretty sure that was Jess Phillips. She also wow. made up the quote um, uh, where she she swore at her, which actually didn't happen, but yeah, she yeah. has made up this entire quote. Jess Phillips, who has been absolutely silent when there are women of colour that are being attacked. Um, uh, now, as you all know, the name of the uh, As- uh, Aspana, Apsana, um, yeah, um, the MP East London, yes, yes, who has been, who has been absolutely horrendously Apsana Begum. Uh, uh, Begum, who has been a victim of um, domestic violence, and it's this dirty thing, and Jess Phillips has said nothing about it, so. I'll say this, if you were going to make an intellectual argument for black conservatism, you would make it by pointing out the hypocrisy of the Labour Party. Um, And you would point out that that not only has it had its issues with anti-Semitism long before Corbyn, not only has it had its issues with Islamophobia, it's also been shown to be anti-black and you could you could say uh why do they expect my vote that is a an intellectual argument that can be had um i don't think it's what a lot of the bad faith actors um who kind of make the arguments are making yeah i agree with that just to follow up now i'm just going to cap that here's an excerpt from the report racism in the party is not experienced by individuals solely through acts of aggression or microaggression towards them personally is experienced through seeing colleagues pass over promotion, being the only person from an ethnic minority background around the meeting table, being managed by a near exclusively white senior team, and hearing the particular disdain which colleagues reserve for, for example, ethnic minority MPs, councillors, and CLP constituency Labour Party members. Doesn't that sound just like the exact sort of nomination that we hope that we would be voting for a Labour Party to get the power to make sure they help eradicate those sorts of organisations? That sounds like just classic old school 80s, 70s corporate racism, corporate racist organization where a black person under where a black person pretty much is under full time hostility to the point where it could drive you into a grave if you're not careful. 
that you just find that hey it's persistent you got that you got you you just find that sooner or later one day you wake up you go to the doctor you, your life's okay the next day this you go to the doctor and they say to you hey why is your blood pressure so high and you think yourself what what have i done and you'll think oh yeah i ate a lot of salt or so but no i mean you're that's stress uh... <laughs> this is this is um this is so and when you look at it like hey with what uh, adam even pointed out about diane abbott the diane abbott was there quite literally if you remember the 2017 election Diane Abbott clearly gone through a breakdown in the process. You could actually visibly see it. You could you could oh. see it. You just have to look at the TV screens to the point where I'm there saying to myself, I've been messaging people saying Diane Abbott shouldn't be doing more TV because quite literally she's being rolled out right now to just be a punching bag. And it's quite literally, she, it's quite clear she's not being protected or served properly. And then, and there she was and to the point where when she was in the bathroom crying, people pointed, they, they, someone point. I, I, I believe it's just, if Andrew was correct, um, it's just Phillips. If I'm wrong on that, I will issue an apology. But that was my understanding. But if I'm wrong, I will issue an apology. Someone in the Labour hierarchy pointed out where which toilet Diane Abbott was crying in, and um and that and it just speaks to it speaks to so much. It's a sad, sad day because really, truly, it's one thing to have racism in the Conservative Party. We don't vote for them. We don't vote for the Conservative Party. It's another thing to have racism with black votes. So for black people to vote for you, or it's like going into shop. And you're seeing an exclusively black clientele there, and then the shop, the shop merchants actually just being racist towards us. It's kind of if you hold on one second, we keep you in business. We help to keep you in business, and there you go. Now, the Dom, who's normally on this pod, um, has said before that um, the reason that neither political party really kind of seemingly has time for black people is that we make up three percent of the electorate, and they have kind of made this kind of political calculation that it's not going to hurt them. But there are also, you're beginning to see the trickle of articles that say that Labour needs to remember that London is one of its heartlands too. And if you've seen what's happened in Tower Hamlets, uh, it's quite clear that this idea that their vote is to be, that our vote is to be taken for granted, uh, is very dangerous for them. Yeah, Tower, so to explain what happened in Tower Hamlets to readers, so a group called, uh, by the former, um, a former senior politician, um, a very, very locally loved, beloved and respected guy in the, the Bengali community, a gentleman called um, Lutfa Rahman, um, set up a, a, a political party called um, Aspire. It wiped out the Labour Party, every seat. It wiped out the Labour Party in, in Tower Hamlets. You name it, took them out. And that's where we are right now. So, because look, at the end of the day, I don't, I, I believe that it's a, it, it breaks my heart because when I see the Labour Party go, go out like this, I remember myself as a seven year old. The first political memory I have was me when I was in foster care in the 80s, handing out leaflets to people to vote for the Labour Party. It was the, I believe, it was the 87 election, and I was just going around saying, "People vote Labour." And I had my, I had the lapel, the actual badge on, and everything else. It's an old school picture of me somewhere with it. It's funny because my daughter has a similar picture of herself too, when she's seven, um, in front of a blow-up doll of, uh, of Jeremy Corbyn, 2019 election. But what I just remember waking up the following morning, thinking that yeah, Labour won. Because everybody we knew, everybody in the area was voting for Labour, and then they just said no, they got battered by the Conservative Party. They were just shut. I went to school feeling sick and just feeling sick about it, feeling sick that my team lost. They really made me feel physically sick. But but I think of the Labour Party and I think to myself that how much faith and hope we put into them and how much we're off and how so how much we're let down. And then when we lift the actual lid on behind the scenes, it then it then gives credence to people like Kevin Badenoch. And by that I mean this. My some friends, a friend of mine who went to university with Kemi Badenoch said that even at university she was a rabid right winger. 
But the key thing they said that she would often say to him that, listen, you guys are used like tools by the left. They are just going to, they will do nothing for you whatsoever. They'll just keep using. And she, she had this calculation out by the time she was 18, 19 years old. Um, 18, 19, 20. And then um, she said, they will just keep using and using and using you and they'll do nothing for you whatsoever. And now when you now see it, and now it boils down to the other side of things. When it now comes down to the other side of things, here we were seeing that hey, 20 quick years later, Kane Vadon's coming forth in the, in the Conservative Party leadership election, and um, pretty much people like us are barely in the Labour Party. I mean, look at it from a from a black perspective or so, poorly underrepresented, very very poorly underrepresented, and nobody cares. That's just it. Nobody cares. Our issues, our concerns, are just a no concern. Nobody, there's no real care. So bridge my heart. I hope the Labour Party listen to people in the Labour Party. Get to, don't get me wrong. At the same time, too, I'm very good friends with many a Labour MP. I get along with Labour MPs a lot more than any other party. They give me their time of day. They we speak. We have good times together. But um, but yeah. It, but it's a heartbreaking thing to see this happen. Speaking of Keir Starmer, when Keir Starmer was running to become leader of the Labour Party, I went to go see him in Tottenham. I went to go see him speak. I went. I purposely stayed behind the scenes so I could see his back office, so I could see what they were like, because I was already hearing rumours about back office dysfunction in Labour and potential racism. I didn't get any vibe of that, but it, it breaks my heart that this is where we are with it. And the Ford report, but also breaks my heart, is that if you look at it, the Ford report was largely just swept under the rug. Media didn't really run wild with it. There was no nothing. It was just like, oh, well, hell, that's that, and they moved on. Well, this is this is kind of what I was going to ask. I mean, was this really any sort of surprise because the only thing I obviously I can't help but relate this back to situations in the US and um, it's exactly the same thing where it's like you have the Democrats you have the Republicans liberals conservatives they're all the same they're all the same one is just a bit more upfront about their racism and their bigotry and the other um, plays it down because they want to take advantage of minorities um so i don't know it's not really that surprising in the states when things like this happens i don't even think an investigation would happen because we all we know what the deal is we know what the game is so is this a surprise to constituencies like is it a surprise when people read these reports Uh, (coughs) what happens with it i mean i think it's a surprise insofar as things so if you heard that okay if if we want to put it in the state's context if you heard that um say Kamala Harris had a shocking interview and Kamala Harris was in the bathroom somewhere crying her eyes out and then um, one of the upper echelons behind the scenes of the, the Democrats actually pointed out to a journalist that Kamala Harris is in that bathroom over there crying her eyes out, go film her. Um, and this was, you would be, you, it would be somewhat shocking to hear, you'd be surprised. I think that, look, the Democrats have their own big, the Democrats and Republicans have their own, the Republicans, similar to the Conservative Party is becoming increasingly an extremist sect. Um, the Democrats or so, for example, have a similar problem that they don't really do much for for black people. I remember if you look at it, so the Democrats hold pretty much every lever of power right now and they're not moving the dial. So even Obama years, um, the dial didn't move anywhere near as much as everybody would have hoped for from 2008 to 2016 when they left office. So it's um it's a sad, it's a sad, sad state of affairs. But I just want to address Angela's point about the whole, yeah, they're only 3%. I get that too. But there's communities that are, I think there's communities that are actually much smaller than the black community. 
but are able to actually punch, pack a punch, and make sure that they are represented, their their issues are are cared for. And so I don't think I think that there's two sides of it. There's numeric num, numeric power, the number of people you have, population power, but there's also the economic side of things too, and also to how how savvy you are politically in organising yourself. And I think that's the one thing that we haven't really done a good job in, to the point where well, right now, right now, as far as the black community is concerned, that the far right actually out-organized us or so that's a point where they that you've got the conservative party who managed to quite literally they're infiltrating black spaces with the likes of Kerry Badenow because they're better organized than us and I think that's there's anything for black people and for our for, for black people listening to this or so is that boy join a black organization hold it to account make sure that they're doing proper good work and make sure that they're organizing the community properly and get things done because and I'll say one final point about the Labour MPs in particular. I, I was speaking to a Labour MP from the North not long ago, and I said to her that, listen, one of the key differences between you and another Labour MP in the South is that if the Labour Party, I often say to many of them too, that if the Labour Party did not exist, would you be where you are? Would you be the MP for where you're sitting right now, for where you're an MP of, if the Labour Party did not exist? And then um, if you can answer, if the answer to that question is no, that means you need the Labour Party in order for your career to be, for, to, in order for you to have a career. So you're not really a person of the people if the answer is no. If the answer is yes, then you're a person of the people. And uh, Diane Abbott, I believe, yeah, Diane Abbott would definitely be where she is, even if Labour was there, was, was, didn't really exist. Let's talk quickly about your book. Angela, you want to talk about Think Like a Man? Think Like, Think like a White... <laughs> <laughs> Nels' book, Think Like a White Man, is honestly one of the funniest books I have read, I think, ever and i just the thing is is i always kind of there's always a moment in a book where i'm like i'm either going to carry on reading or stop and the line for me it was actually in the preamble it was really early he says um uh now i have to set up the conceit that um it's not just written by nails there's a fictional character i'm not going to spoil the name because it's wonderful but he says (laughs) that i also used to believe in father christmas two fairy mary poppins tony blair and a slew of other dubious white characters of all the tomfoolery listed above i'm least ashamed of the last sentence other than the tony blair stuff which really was naive should have seen that white man coming and (laughs) i i I did a spit take i did a spit take (laughs) because what he what what you do in your intro is you set up no no this is not me this is some kind of amazing character and i just wanted to kind of know very quickly how the book came about and uh because it's an amazing read sure thank you thank you so much i think like a white man um it's a book written co-written it's a book by a gentleman called dr boule white law dr boule white law is a rock star academic a little bit older than me and um it looks like the life had gotten to him a little bit you know how it is for academic fast cars fast women the good life you did was so cocaine and hookers that's just he lived the life or so of a, of a, of a rock star academic and then um, he wanted to put his ideology out into the world, and he contacted me. He was—he had been sectioned by that moment or so because he'd gone a little bit too far. So my sister was working in the mental health. My cousin was working in the mental health hospital, and she said to me that there's a man in here who's read he read my articles in the Voice. He wanted me to come over, and that was Dr. Booty White. And here we are right now. Good guy, good guy. I haven't heard from him since, <laughs> heard from him since the book came out. I haven't. He ran away. He ran away and left me holding the bag. Um, but the funny thing about this is right. So of course I'll—I'll I'll let you know the joke, everybody. It doesn't really exist. It's just a character wrote the book from, the, from his perspective. Because I felt like I wanted to write a book on the black experience, in but I wanted to, to write about being navigating the world whilst black or conquering the world whilst black or navigating the world whilst black. But I just couldn't bring myself to. 
I couldn't afford to write it just on a straight lace one front because I just felt that it would um it would be a bit too predictable and a bit too harsh for people to read. And I'm really good at writing satires. It's always been my thing. So since I was a teenager, and I thought, let me just write it as a satire. But what it was is that I just felt that I needed to use I used the corporate world as a metaphor of the whitest place you could potentially inhabit as a black person. So at the time I was a banker, I was working in banking, I was working for an organization called BlackRock. And in banking, for example, I actually thought I actually thought that not just bad, I thought that financial services had issues with race. And it did. It really did. But until I joined media, I realized that financial services was basically was was the United Colors of Benetton advert. Um, that media was quite. Hold on, Nels. Nels, because we cannot we cannot have you talk your time in the media world about Dom here. We're gonna have to bring you back for a part two. Sure. You with Dom yeah, I was gonna really really chop it up because um, yeah. Dom 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 started with Deloitte, so. We need you to chop that up. So, that. so I'll, I'll reserve the media stuff. But I just found So I used um think I used the white the whiteness of the corporate world as a metaphor for the whiteness of the world and how to navigate it all together. And um and that was pretty much how it came about. So I just looked at my experiences in the corporate world and I thought, so, okay, I can use this as a metaphor and make that something a little bit more broader. And that's how it came about. It was um. It, it was an interesting, I really enjoyed writing it because it was therapeutic to me. It was very, very therapeutic. And um, just to give you a little bit more about the inside the creation of it. And um, Alana, it would be good to know whereabouts you're from in America before I say this. Um, no, no, say it first. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. I'm not going to say anything bad about America, but yeah. yeah. You could say everything bad about America. Uh, I love America, too, because I actually love going to stay. I love knowing, well, I don't know why I'm still here. I should be in the States right now. I should be in Miami, my favorite place on earth right now. But what was interesting is that, um, so I just became a dad for the first time, and I'm grateful to God for it. And then um, the only time I've ever become a dad that I'm aware of, anyway. And then um, so I, I held out paying for it anyway. So that um, so I, my missus wanted to go to Ireland to go stay with her folks for a little bit. I just, and I just felt like I just wanted to. I need to. I need a quick holiday to write this book because I knew I had a finite amount of time to write this book right now before my daughter needed all my time for me. And then um, I decided, okay. I'm going to spend two quick weeks to go somewhere quiet and tranquil, somewhere I can concentrate, somewhere where there'll be no distractions and no nothing, somewhere I could inspire me and get the work done. So I went to Vegas, Atlanta, Miami by myself, uh, just me alone by myself on my on my Jack Jones, on my on my lonesome. And then I got to Vegas and I and so if you've been to Las Vegas before, you know that the hotel rooms are fairly cheap, but they're beautiful. And then, but what they do is that they pump oxygen into the hotel rooms to keep you awake, so you go out and gamble. You don't stay in the hotel room. But in the hotel room, you can get a hotel room for $100, $150 a night, and it'll have a jacuzzi, or have pretty much everything you wanted in. And I just got one of those lovely hotel rooms in a, on the 40-something floor somewhere. It's just beautiful. And I wrote for about four days straight, and I wrote about 20,000 words. And they were all garbage, so I had to delete them all. So I got them, then I went to Atlanta. And then I went to Atlanta, stayed in somewhere beautiful again. Once again, I stayed in um, um, Buckhead, and then um, but I was spending a lot of time in Bankhead. Um, I went and I had a great time there, and I wrote another 20,000, 25,000 words over about four or five days. Garbage again. It was terrible. It's not till when I got to Miami and I was writing on Ocean Drive, and I started to see people just approach me, different crazy different types of people just approach me for all sorts of stuff. And I thought to myself, yeah, these are the interesting people and the inspiration, the idea, looking at the characters, looking at the people. And I came up with the idea for Bude White Law. And I started to write it satirically. And it just started flowing from there. In fact, there's a chapter in the book called Sex Cells. And I actually wrote that chapter 
in King of Diamonds itself. I sat in there with <laughs> dead, dead Tuesday night. So you go to Miami, Monday night is strip club night in Miami. So, but Tuesday night's meant to be dead. So Monday night, Wiz Khalifa was in was in King of Diamonds that, that Monday night, a couple of however many years ago. And I didn't go. But I just thought to going on a Tuesday night because it's dead, that is more my thing because I don't like the <laughs> music or so. I just wanted to go and see people. So I met this lovely young lady called Cece and she was a stripper. And she actually broke down all the sexual politics and commerce, capitalism and sexual mm-hmm. politics that I wrote about in the book. Every word about it is from her. God bless her. And at the end of the evening, she then, as we were just still talking, she then told me who owned the club. There was a guy called Akinelli, who was a 90s rapper. Fatal. Uh, she then suddenly just brought that guy to me in the flesh. I didn't even know that he was... A, I was shocked. So it was such a fascinating experience. Writing a thing like a white man was such a refreshing time in my life because it really just made me escape every single day anything I was going dealing with at work it would just help me just take me out of there mentally and I'll just think to myself whatever came at me I'll just think I'll just put this a book later on and here we are right now so it lives on amazing thank you think like a white man get out there and read it 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 reminds me of uh sort of reading Simeon's book and you think and when he goes to LA and some of the down and outs and skid row and it's like it's it's a different world but everything they talk about you the mindset of it is entirely sort of relatable it's just seems fantastical though can't wait to read that also just for our black in the box obviously it's a collective kemi get get black in the box yeah done yeah for sure (laughs) done out here back in the box uh, let's hope let's hope she's done out here let's hope so so god if she's not done you know what that means right the black plan for a Banner Not Prime Premiership, God forbid the fourth, will kick in. And that means quite literally, we oh. annex Margate. Alana's gonna leave Alana's gonna be there with the clash deck off right now. She'll be there with the clash deck off. Yep, yep. Dan, Angela will be there right now, two guns up in either hand. Scarface final scene, say hello to my five to my little friend. And Margate is ours. We take Margate, then we take Snowdonia, and we link the two of them via air, straightforward. We just make sure I don't know, it's we there was an elaborate plan to just make sure that we really and truly we we guaranteed our safety and prosperity in the long term yeah. and it quite literally it all surrounded it starts with margate and from there we just keep growing and we'll continue to with our next margate and off we go and it would have been a glorious plan and um probably would have ended in nuclear warfare but we at least would have given it a good shot so no, that's no. what that really matters hold tight I democratic republic of margate <laughs> Yeah. Oh no, which is name? The Democratic Republic of Blacktopia. You <laughs> name it. So that would have I would have been I would have been somewhere I would set I would have started up the ACT organization, which is the anti rhymes with spooning task force. And so there we go. Um, <laughs> on that on that on note, that note. <laughs> on that note, Angelo, thank you. Alana, thank you. Thank you. Now, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. We out. Blacktopia.